welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten and I am the podcast editor for the JNMP. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Simpson, who's a consultant in rehabilitation medicine at the Institute of Health and Wellbeing at the University of Glasgow. We're going to be discussing his recent review in the JNMP, looking at mindfulness-based interventions in people with MS or multiple sclerosis. So Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. So Robert, your paper is obviously about mental well-being among people with multiple sclerosis or MS. So I wanted for my first question is about how often you see these sorts of comorbidities and mental health concerns in this population. Population level data uh, from Scotland suggests that mental health comorbidity, and that's specifically referring to anxiety and depression, uh, is about three times as common in people with MS compared to controls. Uh, and elsewhere, other research in this area shows that people with other long-term conditions, we, we, we know that uh, having a long-term condition is associated with an increased risk of a mental health comorbidity. But in people with MS, this seems to be uh, even more so uh, the case. Uh, so if you look at other long-term conditions, yes, people also have mental health comorbidity, but not as common uh, as among people with MS. And in, t in terms of my own clinical experience, I think what patients most commonly talk about is stress. They don't talk about anxiety and depression. These are kind of clinical terms, if you like. Uh, so they talk about perceived stress. And part, part of the problem that we have as clinicians and academics is that the research doesn't really focus on stress. It, it focuses much more on diagnostic categories like anxiety and depression. So, they, so they've been assessed so we can say with a degree of confidence about the prevalence of these comorbidities in people with MS. Stress is a bit harder to define uh, and to study in that way, but patients report it and they often report it in my clinical practice, what I've found, what patients tell me is that they're, they're most likely to tell the MS specialist nurses about these problems. Um, and, you know, probing a little deeper, asking why, why do you tell the nurses about it? And not anybody else, they say, well, the nurses ask about it. So I think it's a problem and it's prevalent and we won't find out about it unless we ask about it. And then, then that, of course, leads on to the next question, which is, well, what do you do about it if, if it's present? And I think it's important to remember in people with MS that stress, anxiety and depression can present in the, the standard kind of ways, just like any other person, but it's a little bit more complex in the context of MS, given that there can often be a lot of physical uh, and somatic symptoms uh, associated with the condition. For example, there's a, you know, there's a strong relationship between anxiety, depression, fatigue. Uh, these things can be quite difficult to pick apart. So yes, it, these are common problems in the MS population. Given its sort of commonality in the particular population, um, how, are they, how are these symptoms, anxiety and depression in particular, how are they ordinarily treated? And given that your paper focuses on mindfulness, why, why is that? To be frank, they're treated based on who the patient sees and what the, what the clinician recommends to the patient. And I think it's important to remember that it's a person that's got the condition rather than just the condition itself. So we have to be careful with you know, making strict recommendations. But in the UK, uh, clinicians have got the NICE guidelines, uh, which they can refer to. Uh, and they've got that for multiple sclerosis in its own right, but also for anxiety and depression as well. There are, there, there are NICE guidelines available there, which can be followed. So commonly people would, uh, would refer to the, the, those guidelines when they were deciding what to do. Uh, often you find that 
patients have got their own ways uh, of managing impaired mental well-being so people find ways around that through social contact social support counseling a, a lot of people with MS actually find will have been to see a counselor they'll have been they've tried mindfulness they've tried yoga and then the, the other uh, main sort of strand is through uh, pharmacological treatments uh, so antidepressants being one option there so obviously your review in the JNMP is about mindfulness treatments in MS patients. So tell us a bit about why you decided to focus on mindfulness itself rather than other types of interventions. And then of course, what your review found about the utility of these sorts of treatments in MS. Okay, so we focused on mindfulness because we knew that their, our epidemiological work had demonstrated a high prevalence of mental health comorbidity in people with MS. And we knew from uh, a Cochrane review in 2006 and subsequent reviews uh, that there was a bit of a dearth of evidence uh, with regards to effective psychological treatments for people with MS. We also knew that mindfulness was effective in uh, treating people with anxiety, depression and stress, but that there hadn't been any, any review of those types of treatment for people with MS. So it made sense uh, to review uh, the evidence for mindfulness-based interventions uh, specifically for people with MS. The other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that if treatments are effective in one population, it doesn't necessarily follow that they'll be effective in another population. So extrapolating from the evidence for anxiety and depression and the guidelines for anxiety and depression straight to the MS population doesn't necessarily make sense. For example, people with multiple sclerosis often have other comorbidities which might impact on their ability to participate in these interventions. And they also may have a range uh, of disabilities, often complex disabilities, uh, which again can affect how individuals can participate in these interventions. So we wanted, we wanted to factor in these potential issues uh, when we carried out the review. So what the, what the review found was, in terms of an evidence base, we looked only at randomized controlled trials. So looking at, in theory, the highest form of, of trial-based evidence. And what, that, what we found was that there had been 12 randomized controlled trials that were eligible for inclusion. And that we were able to extract data from eight of those trials for, for a meta-analysis. And on the basis of those studies, the meta-analysis demonstrated that there's evidence that mindfulness-based interventions are, are moderately effective at improving anxiety, depression, and stress in people with MS. And that's comparable with the effects that we see for cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, although there isn't a, a sort of gold standard treatment per se for these conditions in multiple sclerosis, it's previously been the most uh, researched and had the best evidence in terms of a psychological treatment for, for people with MS who've got depression or stress. There wasn't any evidence for any particularly effective treatments for anxiety in the context of MS prior to our study. So that's one of the, I think one of the fairly important findings to come out of the review is that there's evidence that, that these treatments are effective for anxiety besides uh, stress and depression. The other findings from the review, which I think are, are interesting, is that the types, the studies that had been included in the review used different types of mindfulness-based interventions. And this is important because mindfulness-based interventions originally were designed, we're talking about the 1980s, to deliver stress management programs to people with chronic pain. So they weren't, they weren't designed for treating 
uh, anxiety or depression per se. And they developed over the next 20 to 30 years into treatments for stress, and which was mindfulness-based stress reduction, and then treatments for recurrent depression, uh, and that's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So in terms of randomized controlled trials, what we, what we saw in our study was that people had used a variety of different mindfulness-based interventions, and that in some cases, they had altered the interventions, often without justification, and that has potential implications for how effective these treatments are. Uh, so another interesting uh, you know, set of data that came through in our, in our study was what these interventions had actually comprised. And, you know, and it had been quite varied, and we weren't really able to say on that basis what the optimal mindfulness-based course uh, would be for people with MS. Uh, the, the mindfulness-based stress reduction and the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy both appear to be effective, but we can't say that one's necessarily better than the other. So I think there's, there's, there's scope for further research there. And the other thing from the study is that although these are randomized controlled trials, which means that they're uh, by default start out being seen as high quality evidence, uh, when you start to dig down, some of the, the trials were not uh, that high quality uh, in terms of uh, reporting of findings. Uh, and that can also make it difficult to draw firm conclusions. But nonetheless, all of that being said, I think there, you know, there's 12 randomized controlled trials in the systematic review, eight included in the meta-analysis. The quality scoring uh, using the Cochrane Collaboration tool it su suggests that about half of the trials are high quality or low risk of bias, but about the same number are, are of a lower quality. So I think there's, there's, there's reasonable evidence to say that these, these treatments are likely to be effective for people with MS. But I think we have to be cautious that these types of studies where you look at a meta-analysis and you draw conclusions from that, we have to remember that we're dealing with individual patients. Uh, so I think it just adds another potential treatment option to the you know to the toolbox if you like when we're dealing with our patients and they're seeking out treatments that are likely to be effective for impaired mental well-being. A lot of interesting findings there Robert um, which bring me on to my sort of final question for you about the implications for future clinical practice which of course you have touched on a little bit during that during your last answer but about sort of how you know given that there are these this sort of broader scope of mindfulness treatments than perhaps anticipated in terms of the diversity of the particular type of treatment being given are there any sort of take-home messages for say clinicians listening to this or perhaps patients who are sort of dealing with these sorts of symptoms We've been involved, besides this study, we've been involved in researching mindfulness-based interventions for people with MS for a number of years. And we've been following a, a, a framework, the Medical Research Council UK framework, uh, which would treat mindfulness-based interventions as complex interventions. What that, what that means is that it's not a simple linear scenario where somebody says, I'm depressed, the doctor says, do mindfulness, the patient does mindfulness and gets better or, or, or doesn't get better. They're complex interventions because there are multiple potential active components within mindfulness-based interventions. For example, they're traditionally delivered as a group intervention. Being part of a group itself is an intervention. There are teacher characteristics to consider. So if a teacher delivering the course is not experienced in dealing with people with MS, with complex, multi-morbid, disabled patients, then quite reasonably, 
at least in theory, they may not be as effective. Beyond that, uh, mindfulness-based interventions uh, take place over eight weeks with a class every, every week for eight weeks of about two and a half hours, and then sometimes a day retreat uh, at week six where people get an opportunity to practice all the different things that they've learned. Now, when people are in these classes, they're being taught uh, a variety of meditation practices, and the meditation practices are quite diverse. For example, some of them focus on awareness of breathing, some of them focus on body awareness, some of them focus on body movement or yoga postures. Other uh, aspects of the course focus on psychoeducation, so teaching people about stress, teaching people about how one might respond to stress, awareness of stress, awareness of factors that contribute towards stress. Uh, and then there is uh, a fairly hefty home practice commitment associated with these uh, treatments, talking about 45 minutes per day is what's recommended uh, practicing these meditation practices using cds and uh, reading books things like that so i think it's very helpful for clinicians and patients to be aware of what mindfulness-based interventions comprise before anyone makes any recommendation i think it's important to consider that somebody who is perhaps more physically disabled may not be able to participate in the full range of meditation practices or yoga postures, for example, if they go on a standard mindfulness course that isn't designed for people with MS. Which brings me back to uh, my earlier point about the, the research that we've been carrying out, which is looking at developing mindfulness-based courses that are optimised for people with MS. And what that means is studying standard treatments, so not making any initial alterations to them, Studying standard treatments for people with MS, so creating a, a group, testing a, a mindfulness-based intervention for, for people in that group. Looking at what people report in terms of outcomes, so do they feel less stressed, less anxious, less depressed, these sorts of things. Um, and also looking at what qualitative feedback do people give. So what do the people with MS actually think about the intervention? Do they like it? Do they not like it? What factors make it easy for them to participate? What factors make it difficult for them to participate? How would they suggest altering the course? So what we've been doing is we've been developing a, a mindfulness-based intervention on that basis. And I think going forward, uh, that's likely to be the most acceptable type of intervention for people with MS. So there's a sort of co-development of the course taking place. Uh, and it's potentially likely to be more effective uh, because it's more acceptable and it's more accessible. So for clinicians making recommendations to patients, I think it's helpful for clinicians to know what mindfulness-based interventions comprise. I think it's important for patients to know uh, the type and level of commitment that would be required for them in order to see through the course, because there's evidence elsewhere that the amount of the dose, if you like, so the amount of uh, session attendance, the amount of home practice does make a difference in terms of outcomes. So the more people attend, the more homework practice that they do, the more effective the treatment. And I think that uh, clinicians should be able to offer patients choices because not every patient's going to want to do mindfulness, not every patient's going to want to uh, go for cognitive behavioural therapy, and not every patient's going to be uh, willing to take antidepressant medications. So I think overall, in terms of both research and clinical practice, what we should be working towards is trying to find out where mindfulness-based interventions fit in the overall picture of helping people with multiple sclerosis who've got impaired mental well-being. Uh, so it's very much to, 
you know, this shows my research bias, but I, I think it's still very much a work in progress. I think there's more work to be done here. But the same could be said for other treatments uh, like antidepressants and uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. So I think that that's, that's how to answer your question there, Liz. Some really fantastic recommendations there, Robert, for both patients and clinicians listening. I definitely uh, look forward to hearing more about those particular type of mindfulness treatments that you are developing potentially for the use in um, MS patients and look forward to hearing hopefully more from you in the JNMP in the future. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Liz. It's a pleasure. That was Dr. Robert Simpson, who's a consultant in rehabilitation medicine at the Institute of Health and Wellbeing at the University of Glasgow. He was talking about his recent paper in the JNMP, looking at mindfulness-based interventions for mental well-being among people with multiple sclerosis. You can, of course, download the paper for free on jnmp.bmj.com. And we thank you all for listening.